my interpretation of inspire is that we want to inspire coaches to think we want to empower them to make decisions we want to support them to make progress but if we go back to the inspiring them to think ultimately saying what is the purpose of your club and what are your values Welcome to the Liverpool FA podcast. Our aim is to provide regular insight from a variety of experts to help you in your own football journey. We'll do it through interviews, roundtable discussions and by linking to other resources to help support you. For more information about each episode, just tap the album art, which will provide you with more about our guests and links to further content. In this episode, we talk to Ben Bartlett. Ben has been an inspiring influence on many coaches around the country through face-to-face contact or his regular bootroom articles. He has a wealth of experience in coaching and coach development and has been influential in the recent changes within the FA coaching courses. This was a real pleasure to sit down with Ben. We recorded this last summer down at St George's Park on a baking hot day, which seems a world away now in this cold weather. And I don't know many people who are able to communicate their message with as much clarity as Ben does. We think you'll enjoy this one if you're a coach working within any context. And as ever, links to all the resources mentioned, including Ben's bootroom articles, can be found in the show notes. Enjoy. Ben Bartlett, welcome to the podcast. Morning, thanks for having me. Good to have you in. I've been trying to get you on this for a while now and our diaries have finally managed to collide, so welcome. Good to see you. If you could just explain to the guys listening a little bit about your role, what do you do, what might a typical week look like for Ben Bartlett? I'm a youth coach developer, uh, so I work in the South, principally have four professional football clubs and uh, support the ongoing education development of their staff principally working in the academy programme um, I guess the ECPP has um, imposed a set of rules onto coaches about needing to be qualified uh, A licence and advanced youth award level um, so much of the work is about supporting coaches to navigate that process but as much as possible make it reflect the demands of their job and the context in which they're set which is unique to each club uh, what a typical weeks look like I guess you would suggest that you'd spend one day in each club per week uh, what any day looks like is going to be dependent upon who's going through what qualifications so you might have an under 18s coach doing their advanced youth award so on a Monday you might be in with them in the morning supporting them to work with the scholars understand what a full time programme looks like for players that are probably closer to the performance end of the spectrum uh, Tuesday evening might be working with an under 9s coach at a category 2 or a category 3 club where they're a part time coach uh, much less resourced, maybe going through the Module 3 or even their A licence and trying to support them to make sense of it in a completely different context. Um, so I suppose most of it is atypical uh, and I think the big challenge for us in our jobs is what's historically been somebody in a building decides what's important for coaches, it's more about coaches deciding what's important for them and us helping them to make sense of it and find ways to navigate it that best suits their players. Yeah, so it's, it's almost flipped 180 now. You, you, it looks like it has, I and mean, I think that's a, a positive way to go. I think the challenges it presents to us is that we've often had a standardised way of supporting and assessing coaches, which is the FA decides what the tasks are and the FA decides what the assessment looks like. And I think it's now more of the, the context decides what the tasks are and the context yeah. decides what the assessment are. That's fantastic in the sense that coaches can feel more empowered, that the process of support is more reflective of their day-to-day job. It's deeply challenging for us as coach developers because you almost have to 
be increasingly adaptable to the demands of each person's job, which is a great challenge, but also places us under a, an amount of pressure to make sure that we've got the, the skills to, to meet that demand. And just to rewind a little bit, just for coaches who are listening who perhaps don't know what the EPPP is, if you just give us an, an idea of, yeah. of that for someone who's kind of maybe sat at home thinking, well, what's this? Yeah, it's a Premier League driven programme supported by the Football League and the Football Association, which is very much a means of being able to support and assess clubs to run uh, a programme for the development of young players from nines through to 23s. Uh, there's a whole set of criteria which the clubs will get assessed against, part of which is about the productivity, part of which is about coach development. Uh, part of it is about what the games program looks like. Uh, uh, they can be categorised from category one, which would typically be your, your big, often Premier League clubs, down to category four, uh, where the least investment is, is made, which is only running a, an under-18s program. Um, and those clubs will receive an amount of money from the leagues and an amount of money from uh, the football association to invest in that youth development program. Some of which they match themselves. Thanks for that, Ben. I was trying to um, cast my mind back to the first time we met, actually, and I and I remembered it, and I don't know if you can, can you? No, you need to give me a bit more information. I'll give you a clue. It was, uh, it was at Lancashire FA. It was... Um, with Paul Holder. Correct, yeah. yes. I think it was back in around 2008, would that be right? I think, yeah, probably about right. 2008, 2009. And we, we've actually been formal teammates, if you like, since 2011. Yeah. But I suppose that we we got to work quite closely over the last few years when we were, as an organisation, redesigning our coach education pathway, particularly my work with you or our work together, sorry, on the, on the level two. If you wouldn't mind describing the, the process that we went through and, and how that's uh, ended up um, and, and probably more specifically towards what the level two coaching award looks like now. Um. I think through good intentions we started a process of reviewing all of our qualifications probably about four years ago now I think it was uh, and one of the big things that came out of that was about looking to integrate what was historically separate qualifications which was the youth award with the more traditional awards at level two, level three and UEFA A licence. Um, so I guess that was where we got thrown together to support that process around level two and probably most challenging around level two because historically you had a 12 day course which was a level two course, you had four days for module one and four days for module two and I guess our job was to take those 18, 20 days of, of content and support into something that's bit more flexible bit more responsive yeah so, yeah and sorry to jump in there but it was just something that I want wanted to kind of um, to clarify it's a question that I guess get asked quite a lot is you know why why did we do that why did we merge those those together and I know that we felt that once coaches had done their level one they were faced with this dichotomy of which route do I go down and we would get traditionally around 6,000 coaches who would go and do their what was the old level two uh, and, and only around about a quarter of that number who would then go on to the youth award maybe driven by industry standards whatever that may be and I think I don't know if, it, if it's fair to agree that we, we felt that there was a lot of coaches who were missing out on maybe combining what were the best elements of those two yeah. two qualifications yeah I think that, that certainly was one of the main things that yeah. pinned the change also the element that I guess level two typically predominantly dealt with the technical tactical elements mm. of the game and the youth award probably dealt with some of the softer stuff around social and psych development I think coaching is an integrated process it's difficult to deal with the techniques and tactics if you're not dealing with the social nature of the people that are in front of you if you're not dealing with the things that are going on inside their brain while they're making those decisions about their techniques and tactics uh, and hopefully just to help people to recognize that coaching is a broad discipline uh, that is largely driven by your context not driven by what someone decides on a course and trying to put a program together 
at level two, which has hopefully now inspired what's going on at UEFA being into level four to ensure that uh, A, the assessment brief begins at the beginning and the coach builds their expertise, they build their skill, they build their experience as they go through and that the content that's put in front of them helps them make sense of the work that they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis more than the other way around. Uh, the second part is to make sure that they're supported in situ, so rather than them be only assessed whilst working with the other adults on the course, most of that now is about them being supported within their own setting with their own group of players, be the children or otherwise. Um, and to see coaching as the broad thing that we want it to be through the delivery of the awards, which is, isn't just about how much technical and tactical information you've got, it's about how you can impart that and support the players to understand the things that are important to you in relation to your context. I think the final part of that is that assessment is then an ongoing process. So we've taken an approach of project-based learning, which as a, brief, as a process of assessment seems best aligned to our own vision for coaching, which is to inspire, empower and support coaches, which enables them to define who they are, what their club purpose is, what the values are of the club, how they want the boys or girls to play the game of football, how they're then going to coach and then what training sessions and match days are going to look like to reflect those things, which hopefully means any content that they're exposed to, any support that they get in their club setting enables them to make sense of what they're genuinely doing in relation to the players that are in front of them more than feel as if they've got to line up to something that the FA has decided is important. I mean, I think back to when we started this process now, I always joke because I was in my 20s when we, were, when we started reviewing it and I'm, uh, I'm 33 now when we finally got the course over. Like, I think, yeah, I'm 33. And we had that in, inspire, empower, support. That was our kind of, our core of everything that we were trying to do and almost every decision that we were making when we were starting to develop these courses. And I know we, we you've been involved recently in the UEFA-B. We ran some pilots with the Level 2 and that's now since been released nationally. And we were talking beforehand around how much I've been inspired by not only the coaches that I've worked with um, who've come through since we changed the pathway since August, but also from the other tutors, affi affiliate tutors and county coach developers around the country, the anecdotes I'm getting back and the pieces of work that I'm being sent because we've hopefully empowered the coaches to make their own decisions about how how they want to present their work, how they want to work with their players, actually get them to think about what they believe to be true. I've been blown away. I, one of our colleagues sent me a, a piece of work which um, it had video footage of this particular coach working with his players embedded into it. It was 19,000 words. <laughs> I was just blown away by it. And the quality was, and the journey that, that he'd gone on, um, when you read through the kind of reflective process that he'd, he'd gone through. I know we, we set out to try and inspire, empower and support the coaches, but it's, it's definitely had the effect on me. I don't know if you can talk us through some of your experiences with, with the UEFA Bs that you've been working with, and yeah, I think uh, the, the, the you know we, we the FA has to a degree detailed what its DNA is. I think it falls under the five main headers that are built into that project-based assessment. Define who it is that you are. Define how it is that you want to play. Define how it is that you intend to coach. Define the qualities in the players, so we call it the future player, but the type of qualities that you want to develop in the players, and then define how it is that you'll support all of those things to occur together. So as a project brief, they're the five main headers that we ask coaches to think about, to commit some evidence to. How they do that, as you've said, is, is entirely down to them. And I think that's the key bit about inspiring and empowering people is that ultimately, when you give them ownership of what it is that they're doing, most of the coaches that I come across are in it because they enjoy football and they enjoy being around, I guess, predominantly children. 
um, when you give them the opportunity to build their work, what comes out of that is, is like you say, as inspiring for us as hopefully it is for them. And hopefully as we move towards a, uh, a process of coach development that is more responsive and reflective of each individual coach, that by allowing the assessment brief to represent that, people feel as if it's more a representation of their work, that when we go and support them, we're not judging them in relation to something that we've defined as a standard. We're, we're, we're challenging them in relation to things that they've defined as their standards. And when that happens, people suddenly feel as if this is about me, this is about my context, and this person isn't here to judge or assess me, and I guess how we would deem a traditional process of support and assessment, but it's about genuinely helping them make sense of their work and make them better at it. But it is still assessment, if you like, it's just maybe not traditionally what yeah. what has been coined an assessment. Uh, absolutely, and, and, and I think part of that is about changing the perception of what assessment is. Yeah. I guess historically it was at level two, you've got 35 minutes to, to deliver your themed practice to go from a techniques uh, piece of work into some skill into a small-sided game. At UA for B, it was a phase of player, a small-sided game, and you've got uh, 45 minutes to deliver this theme piece of work. And almost the assessment process led towards people behaving in the way that they behaved, which was, I need to find out as much as I can about pressing from the front, for example, and give as much of that information as 45 minutes as possible. So the assessment drove the coach behaviours. And interesting, on the way up here, I was speaking to a guy who's just taken head of coaching role at a club who was saying about he watched one of his coaches work this week. And he was doing an A-license session, and he said that he didn't really challenge the opposition. It was too easy for his team. He said, how would he support that coach? I said, well, the key thing we need to understand, first of all, is that his normal behaviour is that his behaviour because he wants to show competence to someone that's come to a him in relation to a particular set of things because if we want to show success in 45 minutes to pass a test in the way that it was deemed historically we probably will set stuff up to succeed and we probably will try and make sure that it looks good for us so that we're looking like we're competent more than it is about recognizing what the players might need and then get some support in relation to that yeah interesting and you, you mentioned about that autonomy that we've we've tried to give over to to the coaches to actually think about what is important to them you know you mentioned the, the five core elements of, yeah. of the England DNA that we've built this around and it was interesting that previous episodes we've had Don Vinson and Mark Partington without being explicit have, have, have said the same thing about about this self-determination and when you give people autonomy what you get back in return could be tenfold yeah, yeah. absolutely um, and that takes an amount of, there's still a, a perception, certainly within our education programme, that if you give it away to people that uh, everybody's passing, you're making it easy. My experience just doesn't doesn't bear that out. If anything, people stretch themselves beyond anything that you ever thought they might, because they stop worrying about where the line and where the level is, and they start seeing the line or the level as being as far away as they want it to be based upon uh, their demands. You also see a real change in the way that the players respond to the coach because they all can see that it's for their benefit as opposed to for ours. Yeah, and one of the things I have noticed from delivering this, because it is fundamentally very different in, in historically to how, the, how we have delivered coach education, is the amount of time that people take to do the work, generally longer now, not that that's a good or a bad thing, but the feedback I get is actually how challenging it is because coaches are having to almost relate content that we're helping them with on course back into their own environment and then present back their thoughts in some kind of logical yeah. order and that, that that can be quite a challenging piece of work absolutely and like the, the, the like we've referred to inspiring power and support my interpretation of inspire is that we want to inspire coaches to think we want to empower them to make decisions and we want to support them to make progress but if we go back to the inspiring them to think ultimately saying what is the purpose of your club and what are your values? 
often people haven't even spent any time thinking about that, not because they're bad people, but because no one's ever challenged them to, to do stuff. Coaching has been, I'm going to do what I was exposed to. I don't necessarily even think about why they do it in that particular way. So in many ways you ask people, go on, what's your purpose? Well, actually our purpose is here to give the kids the most positive experience we can. If that's your purpose, your practice, the things that you do need to be a reflection of that. If your uh, purpose is to get players to play for the first team in a Premier League club, then I'm not saying enjoyment won't become a part of that because it will be, but it may be that you're going to choose slightly different approaches to your programme based upon what your purpose is. So you mentioned the values there. I would imagine the vast majority of your work nowadays is working in situ with coaches in their own environments. So how have you found that in terms of having those conversations with coaches and, and clubs around their values? I mean, do you find that it's different to when you probably traditionally delivered most of your work? Enormously. Yeah. Enormously. I suppose in the early days of this job, people would typically, when you turned up, show you their session plan, which I guess is what we've done historically. I've got a session to do on pressing from the front and here's my plan. When you start with what things are important to you and why do you coach in the way that you coach, people often take a step back and go, well, I need some time to think about it. They're like, great, you haven't got to know the answer today. I'm just asking you to think about why you do those things. The values-based thing, uh, I did a master's which finished last year, which the dissertation was on to what degree do coaches' behaviours and activity align with the things that they state as their values. So someone states creativity as being something that's important to them, but they still tell the kids to pull their socks up, tuck their shirts in and make sure that you shake everybody's hand when you turn up. I'm not saying they're bad principles of things that you should do, but there might be a misalignment between saying we want creativity and we're going to ask the kids to keep doing these things. So in most cases, it's just about the principle of alignment. If you say you want um, hard-working players and you keep stopping the session every 90 seconds, there's a decent chance that the players don't get the capacity to, to work hard because we keep stopping it every 90 seconds. If you say you want the players to have the capacity to make decisions for themselves and we run loads of drills and tell the players what to do, again drills and telling the players what to do aren't bad decisions to make, it's possible that there's a misalignment between wanting to build the capacity for players to make decisions. Tell me more about the Masters then because I didn't realise that was was that the thesis that you did? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, I suppose very much around the work that we, we've been trying to do around the, the pathway, which is to what extent do we challenge coaches to think about the things that are important to them, and then when they're doing those things, does it does it marry up? So if a coach says we value hard work, do the coach behaviours and the structures that they put in place support the players to work hard? Do they genuinely value hard work in the way that they behave? Um, so we looked at three different coaches: one in the foundation phase, one in the youth development phase, one in the professional development phase. Watched them over series and sessions of match day did some filming stuff so you get a little bit more of a kind of subjective look at what was going on which can be a bit more discussion on we did some statistical stuff about the types of behaviours that they do the amount of times that the players spent in certain types of practice and really just challenged them to say look these are your these are the club's five stated values these are the behaviours what's the alignment are you, is that what you want and I think we found certainly with two of the coaches the alignment between the things that they stated were important and the way that they behaved was very clearly aligned one less so, but interestingly, the one that was less so been in that environment a, a much shorter period of time. So it may be that his opportunity to socialise himself towards the norms of that environment are going to take a little bit longer. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. And then how, how long did the process last? Uh, the the, the uh, data collection went on for about six months. Yeah. And then uh, the joys of writing up and <laughs> referencing back against some stuff. So I think all in all, it took about nine months to do the piece of work. And um, after going to stand on a stage in Leeds later on this month with your big hat on wearing a silly hat and uh, <laughs> have my ears stick out of it even more than they stick out normally so <laughs> brilliant um, I want to uh, we'll talk a little bit more about those values if, that, if that's alright if if I'm a coach listening to, into this and I'm finding you know this is really interesting to me how how might I go about what, what would there be a process where I could go through to start to think about 
right, what are my core values? Is it just kind of, do I Google a list of values and go, well, that'll do for me? What, what, what might a coach do to start to almost pin their colours to the mast? Yeah, probably just, there is a suggestion that your values are set so deep in your subconscious that you can't actually get to them. Yeah. You can't get to them. But probably having to think about what things are important to you and why they're important to you. So looking back at the things that upset you at work, the things that upset you at football, so things that children do, that colleagues do that upset you, or the things that are non-negotiable in your life. It might be turning up on time. It might be giving your absolute all to everything that you do. It might be being honest in everything that you do. And I think once you start to think about the things that irritate you and the things that are non-negotiables for you, it might be that you start to unpack some of what you believe your values to be. I think then it's a case of trying to say, these are my values, and then recognising whether or not the imposition of your values on your environment, whether that's helpful or whether actually it's unhelpful, because it might be that some of the things that you value to be true are unhelpful in certain environments. So discipline, for an example, might be one. If you're very keen on order and structure, I'm not saying that's bad, but if you're working with five and six-year-olds, it may be that all of that order and structure becomes imposing upon those children more than it comes enabling. That's really interesting. Actually flipping it on its head, because I would imagine what jumped into my mind was we did an exercise recently on a um, on some training where we had to, to go through the same thing where we were given an extensive list of different values if you like okay pick a diamond nine yeah. now whittle that down to six now pick out of that six one core with five that kind of weave around it and um, it was a really interesting process I, I find and immediately what I went to was here's the things that I like if you if, if you like but what I found was when I started to do what you've just done right here's the things that really great really get to me they were probably the easy ones to pick out yeah. interestingly around the uh, around the table I think it was a group of six of us who did the task all six shared one value one value which was integrity yeah. but the rest um, you know, ours, ours varied quite massively and it got me thinking, well, here's what I say, I think are my values, like you say, subconsciously, I might not really know that. And here's what other people around me, like-minded people are saying, but mine might contrast quite significantly. My, my, my important values might contrast quite significantly to theirs. That got me thinking, well, how do I then portray myself? How do I start to treat them? And it got me thinking about, well, how do I work with my own players? What do they value? What, how do I know what they really value? Yeah. So I think it's an important process. And the, the, the kind of idea of shared values, which is if it's just me imposing my values on the environment, that's me in that environment, yeah. not that environment in the way that it connects to everybody else. So like you say, that's key. And probably also helping people to determine what those values mean. So one of the FA's values, for example, is progressive. We can say we're both progressive, but we might have different interpretations of what progressive means. Person A might think progressive is about committing as much as they possibly can to the benefit of everybody else to take stuff forward. Somebody else might see progressive as them getting promotion and more money. So they both think they're progressive, but what it means to them has got some subtle or fairly significant differences in the way that it appears in their behaviour. I suppose they're just words in the end. You could look at a, uh, uh, a picture and tell me that's... Uh, yellow and I could say it's mauve yeah. we just we could see yeah. we're looking at the same thing but through different filters I suppose aren't yeah. we and I, and I guess the, the, the master's work and the sort of day to day work is very much about trying to make people make sense of that so for simplicity I work off of three value the players being accountable value the players making better decisions and value the players having courage the challenge for me as a coach or as a coach developer is say if you want coaches or players to be accountable what things are you going to do that will support that to, to emerge in your environment? So through a coach development perspective, using project-based learning means you decide what's going in there, 
you decide what it's going to look like, you decide how you want to present it. They'll get support for that, it's not just a case of there you go, and with some it needs to be scaffolded in a more structured way than for others. But what it effectively says is you're responsible for this piece of work, you're responsible for the people that are in front of you. Similarly for better decision making, it's very much about allowing coaches to do the things that they believe to be true watching them do it, filming them do it, providing them with some feedback, whether that's formal, whether that's a bit, a bit more conversational, whether that's through the course of video, to support them to say, this is what you did, is this what you want, which hopefully informs them to reflect and think about the decision that they make the next time they're in a similar or, 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 or perhaps slightly different situation. And for people to have courage, which means I want you to try something that you've not tried before. My behaviour then needs to be, it's okay if it goes wrong, in inverted commas, whatever that might look like, but to say I'm here to support you in the event that it goes wrong, not judge you. So if we say these things are important to us, how does that look in our day-to-day -day practice? And then how will we respond to make sure that we're embodying those values? Which means if we embody them in our practice, it might encourage the other coaches and the people that we support to see the value in that as well. Powerful. Hopefully. Yeah. Have you got an example of maybe a coach or a group of coaches that you've worked with in... A, maybe recognising their values and B, if, they're not if their behaviours aren't necessarily aligned with those values, some of the work that you've done to try and bring yeah. those closer together. Yeah, but t t two examples that probably stick in my mind. Uh, the first one is when we were running a, a UEFA B pilot course at a, a, a club this season and there was one young lad there who's come from, come from an analysis background is now coaching part-time in the academy and works full-time in the community programme. And he had the club values uh, and then he had his values there was a, a great deal of synergy between the two, but he used his values as a means of saying positive experiences that he's had in his life and what it meant to him. So he spoke about being together and having teamwork. He spoke about the power of connection with people. And he had a clear set of things that were important to him. He'd rationalised why those things were important to him and then how that meant that he worked with the young players as a result of those things. So that was a really excellent example of where someone did something in a positive way, recognised what it looked like for them, why they felt those things to be important and how they structured that into the players development programme. Um, second one, which is, is a fairly common one, is a, a coach under 18s that I've worked with this, this last season, 18 months, um, who said that the two key things that were important to him was about having a possession-based team and about the players making decisions. So when I've watched though, uh, his team plan on a match day, when I've supported him on a match day, we looked at past sequence statistics and we looked at coach interactions with the players so if they say they want to be possession based how often do they keep the ball how many passes do they keep the ball for before they turn the ball over and it was 85 possessions they were turning it over within two passes 85 percent was it 85 percent of the time yeah. they had the ball they were turning it back over to the opposition within two passes so okay. they either kicked it straight back to about completing a pass yeah had one pass and gave it back had two passes and gave it back so if we want to be possession based about 85% of the time we're getting the ball, giving it back within two passes. So again, it doesn't make them bad, it no. just says you want to be possession based, but what's typically happening is you're getting it and you're turning it back over quite quickly. The second thing they said is you want the players to make decisions and during the course of this uh, 90 minute game, there was 470 something interactions that he had with the players, 70 which went to the left back in the first half, he was right in front of him, the majority of which were telling him when to tuck in and when to get out. The problem for the left back, connecting the two things together, wanting to be possession based and wanting the players to make decisions is the left back would make runs to get forward, but because the ball was turning over so quickly, literally the point he was getting forward, it was turning over and he was having to run back again, so he was literally going back and forth. So the two things connected, he was telling the full back when and where to be, but the approach to possession didn't allow him to be where he needed to be to be able to contribute to the attack anyway. And that, I suppose that sounds like there's a lot of negative stuff going on there. Very much it wasn't. It was a case of saying these were the past sequence statistics. These are your behaviours. Is this what you want? 
and in the cold light of day, the black and white, and then watching back through the video, was a real, um, I guess, penny dropping moment for him where he said, Blimey, I need to think about the way that I behave. He said, I'm going to spend three, four months working at it. Can you come and have a look again? And he spent quite a bit of time working on the position, which was marginally better the second time that we saw him. I think what's important here is to recognise is that we can say we're turning the ball over 85% of the time within two passes. The idea that you're going to get that to 30, 40% in three, four months is, is probably flawed. Yeah. You're going to need a long time to, to support that. But what it did do is it put a point in that coach's mind to say, I need to spend some time working at this and these are the things I'm going to do. So we spent more time in practice looking at how they kept possession. The stuff that you got the analyst to clip was more about how they kept possession for longer periods of time, almost to sow the seed in the player's mind that this is important and this is why we feel it to be important. And the same thing with the coach behaviour. He started to... Um, uh, take like a dictaphone or a thing with him and record himself and try to have periods of time where he was just quiet and again it's not right to say you should be quiet and you should be you no. should be noisy it's just if you want the players to make more decisions it might be there are periods of the game where you say less I think there's a, there's definitely a lot of left backs listening out there nodding in agreement about the amount of times that they've been uh, they've been instructed and, and done yeah. doggies up and down the pitch yeah. um, the bit about the coach behaviours that you mentioned now I found interesting and well, again, Mark Partington in a, in a previous uh, discussion spoke at length about his work and um, one of the things we talked about was this this idea of a, a blind spot. I think it's something in Johari window. Or, yep. And this is just purely um, speculation on my part. I wear a, a Fitbit. And I've, I was coaching the, the boys that I work with, the team under-13s I worked with the other week. And I looked at the time just to see how long we had left. And I noticed I was stood still, but my heart rate was at like 100 beats per minute. And I wasn't, I wasn't doing any exercise. And I was thinking, how am I going to make rational decisions as a coach if I'm stood on the sideline? And in, in fairness, it, it was an exciting practice. And it was nip and tuck. It was getting towards the end of the game. The boys were were um, were enjoying it, and I was enjoying watching them them play. And it, it just got me thinking that if your resting heart rate's in the in the forties or fifties, and your heart rate is double that, even when you're just stood still coaching, how can we start to maybe be more um, more subjective? Sorry, more objective yeah. about making sense of our decisions as a coach. Absolutely, probably trying to recognise and get so you know the the objective nature of a of a piece of technology that tells you what your heart rate is the objective nature of this is the data the objective nature of these are the things that were going on possibly supported by some audio or some video helping people to see what is actually going on what their behavior looks like and whether or not that's the behavior that they want in any particular moment in time um, there are other coaches that are noisy for periods of the game for for good reason that they can rationalise that they were being noisy because the, the players were having a bit of a low spot, they couldn't get themselves out of it, the coach used their instruction, their their hustle, if you like, to almost get the players back on task, whereas other times the coach will recognise that the players are managing the exercise quite well and they don't necessarily need the coach as much. I suppose there's that risk of a coach constantly driving stuff and then the players almost become dependent on that. Another coach that I worked with recently on his A licence sent me some audio, he didn't send me any video, only sent me the audio, which was an interesting thing in itself is that you've got no pictures to back stuff up because he felt he'd got into a situation of talking too much during the session. I think the longest period of time he was quiet for in a 35 minute piece of work was six seconds. Uh, and he said he'd fell into the trap of, he often ran the early parts of the sessions uh, he would often feel he needed to drive the players and the more he drove them, the more he feel he needed to drive them to get what he wanted. And it was almost a case of A, trying to change his practice design so he didn't have to drive it as much, so maybe changing the way that some of the sessions were structured yeah. and B, giving some of the ownership to the players so the players start to drive some of those elements themselves so when the pace drops, when the tempos drop, 
who are the trigger players in that practice that can go, hey, that's not acceptable, and drive it themselves. So it isn't always beholden on the coach to make sure things happen. Essentially, coaching a little bit like playing is behaviour based, which is informed by the decisions that somebody makes. So we're we're in the in the our line of work, if you like, is around helping coaches recognise their behaviours and change potentially those behaviours to where they want to get to and the coach's job is similar with the players one of the things that I know you've pieces of work that you've put out there that's impacted on myself colleagues and wider coach education is this this notion of how do we constrain players in a way to bring about those further desired behaviours I don't know if you want to talk us a little bit more about that that model that you've put together Um, I suppose there's that. Uh, there's lots of you know. I'm guilty as well of, of having a website and there's books that give you loads and loads of practices that says if you want to run a practice on defending that mm-hmm. number. This is the thing to do. And I guess what what we of an organisation has done is given out practice books before you then set somebody's task of saying deliver a session that's undefending outnumbered uh, they turn to page 75 they pick the practice out they run it sometimes it works quite well other times less so but I guess what they're fundamentally not doing is deciding why they're doing what they're doing based on what's important they're doing it based upon what somebody else decided was important um, however just the whole idea of here's a blank piece of paper design a piece of practice undefending outnumbered for some that can be yes, daunting. incredibly yep. difficult for them to do so it's how do you find a stepping stone between practice book and a blank piece of paper to provide some kind of structure, if you like, that might support people to build some practice. It's almost like um, ingredients and recipes, I suppose, yeah. if you're taking a cooking analogy. Yeah. Uh, and possibly thinking about how we uh, design game-like practice that maybe constrains players in a particular way or affords them the opportunity to practice certain things potentially more than others. So we looked at two particular elements to it. One was the design of the practice, and the second one was the, uh, the demands that are placed upon the players. Um, so from a design perspective, we looked at four different pitches, a narrow pitch, a wide pitch, a big pitch, or a small pitch, knowing that whichever pitch design you choose might enable certain things to occur more than others. So for example, on a narrow pitch, you'll probably get more forward passes and runs. You'll probably get more longer passes, potentially. On a wider pitch, you'll possibly get more lateral side-to-side movements. Uh, you'll possibly get more switching of play. You'll possibly get more crosses and finishing, more defending in wide areas, those types of things. If you go for a big pitch, if I'm defending against you one versus one, it's going to become more of a physical challenge. On a small pitch, it's probably going to become more of a battle of how we get together when we're bashing each other a little bit more and recognising that the, the type of pitch that we choose will possibly enable different things to emerge across the four corners, not just technically, tactically, also physically and also in the psychosocial. That's the, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that actually because sometimes coaches will be constrained or their pitch size will be constrained naturally. Yeah. I think, you know, using my, my own example again, we have a squad of, if they all turn up, there's over 20, but we have a third of a small Astro. Yeah to train on um, which is cordoned off by netting yeah. so naturally you're going you're gonna to put a touch line in a yard from each side of that yeah. we, so naturally we will play almost 10v10 11v11 at times on what is a, a, you know, a sliver and, uh, and I wonder why I get frustrated sometimes when the boys won't pass backwards or sideways yeah. because the, the environment that we train in naturally forces them to play forwards yeah. and uh, yeah, you know, much of my early experience was 17, 18 players on a quarter of a pitch so 
I guess you learn to do as much as you possibly can with what you've got. Yeah. I suppose that third of a pitch, though, it can be narrow, but it can also be wide. Because yes. the goals could go at yes. the sides it, yeah. of where it would be as opposed yeah. to being at the end, which I'm not suggesting that makes it any easier, but it does make it different. And then recognising that practice design in its broadest sense isn't just about what we do on the Wednesday night that we train with the players. It's also on the Saturday morning, the Saturday afternoon, or the, or the Sunday when we play our games, which is... There's a possibility of building more games in, of building more flexibility in the games programmes. We might play indoors for a period of time. We might play on a smaller pitch. So I worked with a coach last year who, a normal organised game, spoke to the coach uh, from the opposition in the week leading up to the game and said, look, we've been working on crossing and finishing this week. We're going to make the pitch a little bit shorter than it normally is. So it's wide, so we've got lots of opportunities to play wide. Are you happy with that? The coach said, great idea, let's have a go at it. So they did it. As a result, they increased the amount of opportunities that the players got to practice crossing, overlapping in wide areas, dealing with one versus ones in wide areas. Um, so the games program is also an opportunity to, to think about some of those things and maybe enable the certain the things that you want to happen a little bit more to be constrained through the design of the pitch. So that, that's the first element. The second element is then the demands that you place upon the player. Um, and I've worked off of worked off of three R's. So do you restrict the players? Do you reward? Or do you ask them to relate the task to the situation that's presented in front of them? And again, they're not necessarily right. Some people have a view that the restrict shouldn't be used because it doesn't allow people to make decisions. It tells them to do a particular thing and that I'm not saying they're wrong. I just think that if we, if we want coaches to genuinely engage with stuff, we need to offer them a broad idea about the way that they might interact with the players. Restrict can often be good to increase the amount of repetitions that you get of certain things. So, um, for example, if you want uh, more crosses, you might say you must score from a cross. That presents its own problems because if you win it back in the middle of the pitch and you're bearing down on goal, you think I kick it in the goal. I actually got to go wide because the, uh, the restriction makes me do that. But what it does do is increase the amount of opportunity that you get for the players to practice those things. Uh, the relate is probably at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, recognise the times to cross, which means that the players have got to decide the right time to cross. You might get more repetition, but you probably get more cognition, more thought about why they're doing what they're doing, which possibly through reflection will help them to change their behaviour a little bit more. Rewards somewhere in between, so it might be if you score from a cross, you get three goals. So that might encourage them to go wide and recognise the value of crossing. Um, and then depending upon how you put the players on the pitch can also lead to the way in which they practice that particular thing. So for example, if you're a right footer and I place you on the left wing, there's a decent chance that you'll cut inside more and cross what we call back foot crosses mm. off of that right for the Ashley Young type cross that goes in towards the goal. If we play you on a, a bigger pitch and you're quite quick, it might be that you push and run and then cross from further up the pitch. So some of the ways that we position the players on the pitch as well as the tasks that we give them can possibly give them the opportunity for those things to come to bear. But again, the games programme is an opportunity to do that. We ran a tournament last year. A uh, coach had said that, uh, as an under-14s coach, he said that his team weren't particularly good at managing the game. They'd been to a tournament. They played every single 25-minute game at full tilt and come the semi-final, they were absolutely burned because they played everything at full tilt. So put a particular set of instructions in place, three team tournament, play each team twice. This was um, in training? This was in... This was oh, a in a tournament, yeah. We put a competition together for them to practice these things. Uh, so three teams, half hour game, full size pitch, uh, play each team once. So that was three games. Then play a 15 minute game on a smaller pitch. But the score from the first game for the second game was flipped. So okay. you're Rovers, I'm United. We play on a big pitch, half an hour game. Uh, we go 1 0 up after 5 minutes. We go 2 0 up after 10 minutes. Now, what we know is if we go 3 0 up, 4 0 up, 5 0 up, 
that when we get to the second 15 minute game, that score is going to get flipped. So if we go 3 0 up, we'll start the next game 3 0 down. If we go 5 0 up, we'll start the next game 5 0 down. So what happened as we just suggested United went 2 0 up, and as a result, they then used the next 20 minutes of the game just to keep possession. Mm, so managed they, managed, the they managed the game, they managed the pace of the game from a physical perspective, and what they actually did is run the legs off of the opposition because they just kept possession. <laughs> so it almost says use possession as a means of killing the clock as opposed to. I suppose some of the traditional ways that people might manage the game, which is to run the clock down, kick it off the pitch, take it in the corner. I'm not saying those things are bad, but it might not necessarily be that they're always towards uh, the spirit in the way of, of the way in which you want to play the game. They then started the 15-minute game against that team on a smaller pitch, 2-0 down, and in that 15 minutes had to use a much more energetic, high-pressing approach to the game to get themselves back into it, which they ultimately did, and they won the game 3-2. Um, so. That's probably more of a um, of a, a sort of reward that if you do this in a particular way, you get that maybe constraining the games program to enable certain things to be practiced a little bit more, and also allow people to manage the way that they respond to the game in different ways. I guess that by those players or your team, if you like, managing that game two nil up and running the legs off my team, you know that when you, when we come to play the game on the small sided pitch where the score is flipped and we're winning 2-0, we, we, we might already be shattered and you might have the opportunity to, um, to claw that deficit back straight away. Absolutely, and it was great watching the team that used the possession really well on the big pitch just to keep it. And then when the game uh, flipped and they had 15 minutes on a smaller pitch, the intensity increased, the amount of physical contact increased, the amount of turnovers increased, um, partly because they felt the pressure was on partly because the, the, the design of the pitch meant that the pressure was on, but it was almost how do you deal with it when the temperature's turned up, you've got 15 minutes to get yourself back in the game. And I, I suppose part of that was inspired by uh, listening to Andy Farrell talk about the, uh, the Six Nations, mm. and they said that the, the bonus point system for scoring more tries, even if you lost a change. And he felt that was a positive thing, because even in games that were lost, you might still pursue staying calm, staying in the game, trying to score additional points, knowing that that would support you. And he felt that the Lions tour, which they're now ongoing into uh, New Zealand, that sort of cool head might support them to be able to respond when they were up against it, to know that even though they'd been behind, they knew ways of getting themselves back into the game as a result of the constraints that uh, have been put on the Six Nations. Whether or not there's a direct correlation between them choosing that rules, we're more about entertainment for the crowd. Mm. But we can often see changes that are made for the aesthetics of people watching is being problematic more as soon as an opportunity to build additional skill in the players. Especially given the second test that happened last Saturday and the comeback that yeah. that ensued on that, whether there's any causation there, we'll never know, but yeah, yeah. it's an interesting one. And even the um, the talk recently around how the the timings in football could potentially change to a roll, uh, rolling clock. Stop clock. Stop yeah. clock. Yeah. Should that come in, you know, that could be as significant a rule change as, as the back pass with the way that teams and players will have to manage the game. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So it's it's almost like, what was that quote I, want, I read once about um, in times of change, the learners will inherit the earth while the knowers will be beautifully placed for a world that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's we've got to look similarly with the way that we we approach coaching and player development. Absolutely, and not not throw away things that happened in the past. No. and say past was wrong, but just to say these elements of the past. Uh, uh, one of the clubs that I support, they have a great analogy. They said it's not uh, old school or new school; it's right school. Um, so there's stuff that that have been inherent in coaching since the year dot that should always remain the same. Uh, there are many, I guess, what are called old school principles, which are are great values by which people should live. But it's also important to recognise how things evolved and to 
you know, try and be ahead of the curve if possible. And, and even the relate, restrict, reward model that you've spoken about, it's presented in a way that would seem uh, fresh and new, but actually we, we probably grew up, yep. most of us, learning the game through those, through those principles. You know, I spent half of my youth football career playing on two touch and if I took a third one it was a free kick yeah. so you had that situation where I'd taken my second touch and suddenly I was shielding the ball from nobody around yeah. but it was a restriction yeah yeah. and I think the key thing with, with, with all of it is to so the, the, the kind of I suppose matrix that's been put together is that if you're working on high press what might be the way that you would restrict it to enable that to happen what might you use how might you use reward how might you use relay so two touches is another example is why am I choosing this particular constraint and then am I choosing it for everybody so am I putting Jack on two touch mm. because I want him to get on the half turn and play forward quicker am I putting everybody on two touch because I want the team to play quicker am I going to say to people try and play as quickly as you possibly can so they have to make a decision even though they're not restricted to two touches and how much of that becomes responsive to the individual so right at the beginning of this conversation we were speaking about how we individualise coaching it's the same for the players so I recently did a session which was working on wide areas stuff had a left back who we wanted to overload because it didn't deal particularly well when things didn't go very well so we placed him in a two versus one situation where when the ball went from left to right the right back could join in with their right midfielder against our left back um, that wasn't going on all over the pitch that was going in that particular part of the pitch and he had to find ways of either eliminating the overload or getting a centre half or one of the centre midfielders to come across and support him so you've got tactical stuff going on there you've got the psychological stuff of the boy being under additional pressure which is good for him because sometimes when it happens on a match day he doesn't deal with it particularly well so to expose him to that in training but to make it individual to his character but also make it tactically and technically individual to the position that he plays and the problems that he faces on a match day. Um, so I guess two things in there. The first one is what matrix do we put together with the way that we use those challenges based upon the outcomes that we want for everybody? How do we then individualise it and nuance it based upon the things that we know about the individual players or the position that they play on the pitch? And I guess that is what has changed from what were principles that have been used for Aeons is now that we're getting people to start to recognise and justify and start to think a little bit more or be more considered about how they use these constraints yeah. with which player players and for what reasons yeah. and how do we support them in that process yeah. that's, the, that's the what you know why are you doing what you're doing and not not in a necessarily in a in a, a way to challenge people that you shouldn't mm. be doing that but go on tell me why is it you're yeah. doing that today and if they don't know that again that doesn't make them wrong it just means we might have to think about it so why did you choose that particular practice to go in that place why did you speak to that player in that way why did you do that there if people can go well because of this this and this great if they haven't got any rationale why they did it again not a problem but might want to go and watch it back think about it and consider how they might deal with it the next time they face a similar problem that question why I think culturally I found is almost been a like you said, you've had that step back moment. Ooh. But it, it's it's a really important question yeah. um, if we're going to truly move things on. Yeah, and to be able to say, I don't know. Yeah. And feel, not that you feel comfortable saying it, but feel confident in yourself to say, I don't know all of this yet. And one of the young lads that was doing that UEFA B pilot, we were asked to define who he is, so what he believes to be true. He's 21 and he said, I don't know what my philosophy is, I don't know what Fair my plan. beliefs are yet. But this is where I'm at at this moment in time. And you're like, oh, brilliant, because next year, and he goes in another qualification as he evolves his experience, he recognises that even though he's committed something to his project, he hasn't decided that because he's committed to his project in March 2017 that that's it for the rest of his life. It's This is where I'm at at this moment in time, but I recognise as my experiences uh, grow, as my situation changes, that it might be that I need to consider additional things in that process. Yeah, 
brilliant. I just want to rewind back a little bit. We with, with when you were describing the story about the tournament and the flipped scoreline. Yeah. What was the response from the players like? Uh, the, 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 probably mostly a reflection of the response from the coaches. So the team that ended up winning the tournament, the coaches took on the mantle of saying, "These are the conditions. When we get to turn it up, this is what we're going to do." The team that finished second in the tournament that ultimately got beat in that final game had decided they were going to allow the players to do it. Uh, they started the game, the 15-minute game, 2-0 up, uh, and they managed it really, really well for the first sort of seven or eight minutes. And then they got a bit panicky. The opposition scored one. Quite quickly, they scored a second one. I would say the kids lost their head, but they lost their way and their faith a little bit. And as a result, the opposition went on and won 3-2. So I think to a degree, there might be more learning that's gone on for the team that's got beat mm. because they've had the problem that they faced, they've dealt with it in the way that they've decided to deal with it and the coach's reflections on speaking to him afterwards was now using that, not necessarily that particular tournament but those type of examples as learning opportunities to say what they would do next time. The team that won it, they won it and they performed in that moment but largely it was to do with the coach deciding what the tactics were at that particular moment in time which can send the message, I'm not saying they're right or wrong but it can send the message that coach solves the problem, gives us a solution, we run the solution, we win hence it was a good decision as opposed to the coach feeling as if they got turned over, but recognising there's a really powerful learning exercise there in terms of how they might, um, the decisions that they might make and the things they might do the next time that they face a similar situation. I'm going to throw you a little curveball here, but it's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently when, um, when we've been speaking about constraints and the way that we try and help players to either improve strengths or even areas for development in their own game through that relate restrict and reward how might you use those three conditions with a coach in order to shape coach behavior i don't know if there's any anecdotes or even how might a coach listening in start to use those constraints to, to shape their own behavior uh, so the match day things and uh, i've worked with one coach four times and i matched then his behavior was fairly consistent he was very loud from the side very much taught the kids through the game uh, and he'd said that he wanted to, to be quieter. So at this particular club, they've now got, uh, to say, portable dugouts, their chairs that unfold that you go out and the substitutes and sit on and the coaching staff could sit on. So we asked him to put those five yards back from the side of the pitch. And every time he felt he had something to say, to stand up, walk to the side of the pitch and say it, and then go and sit back down again. So almost restricted him to say, if you've got nothing to say, sit down. If you've got something to say, stand up, move to the side of the pitch, say it, and go and sit down. His, the amount of information that he gave from the sideline reduced by 40% as a result of saying, go and sit down. In the early stages of doing the support, you'd have to go to him sometimes, sit down, because he was stood at the side of the pitch almost waiting for something to say. You've got nothing to say, go and sit down. So it was almost a restrict, sit down, stand up. And then he had to make a conscious cognitive decision, I've got something to say. I physically need to stand up, walk five yards, say it, walk five yards back, sit down again. So that was a great example of of, um, of restraint. restraint. It's bizarre that you mentioned that because I had uh, you've just reminded me of something that happened on a course, and it must have been about five years ago now, where we, we a coach mentioned this, and we did exactly the same thing. So we were using restrict, but without even necessarily bringing it to the forefront. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I suppose as an example of relate, I've got one club that. Uh, has in their syllabus their program that every single session will have 30 minutes worth of um, ball mastery 1v1 stuff in it at the beginning which is, is, is great and is an important part of their play development program what you would often see is that the first 15-20 minutes of that would be unopposed the last 10 minutes of it would be 1v1 which was fairly standard you and I stand 10 yards apart I pass it to you you dribble past me and get to the line again nothing wrong with that but not an enormous amount of variability in the way that that half an hour would be used so we challenge the coaches to think about what's the syllabus theme for this week 
so that's receiving with your back to goal to make your 1v1 ball mastery relate to what it is that you think you're going to be bringing out in your syllabus so it may then be that instead of me kicking it to you 10 yards away and going and pressing you I'm playing it to you 5 yards away and you've got somebody pressing you from behind so you've still got 1v1 element but you maybe got to think about how you receive it in relation to the pressure how you twist and turn to get away how you come short to open up the space behind how you get on the half turn to be able to enable you to play around the corner so ask the coach to relate the theme that the players are going to be working on to the way that they use that one versus one and generate a greater deal of variability in their work. That's brilliant. And anything that you've you've used as a reward task when you've been working with coaches? Um, mostly when they look at um, uh, the, the sort of coach behaviour. Um, so with some of the coaches, we track the individual interactions that they have with the players. So a group of 16 players, a coach I worked with a couple of weeks ago on his B licence assessment, uh, and he used different types of interactions with different types of players at different points in the session. So my question with him was, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And he would say, well, I didn't even know that I was doing it. I was like, okay, what things are important to you? And he said, well, I want the players to be able to make decisions. So I said, think about the nature of your interactions and try and ask more questions. So he would then see whether it's directly reward or not. But what you would see in his statistics is a greater number of questions in that part of the thing, which I guess ultimately rewards him for thinking about the way that he wants to behave. I am. I took a deep dive into the work of uh, a guy called Dan Ariely. I don't know if you've heard of him before. He's um, I'm gonna I'll make a mess of this, I think. But he's a behavioural a behavioural econo- economist at Duke University. He's got some really he's done he's got a fascinating TED talk um, around motivation, and he's written some really interesting books. And one of the things, and I was reading this a few years ago. Now he was talking about how as human beings we are much more loss averse than reward gain or reward seeking rather and I was this was in a voluntary capacity so it's not I'm not saying it's anything that we would endorse in our work with the FA but I had a I was working with a coach and he acknowledged that he was very vocal and too vocal on the sideline on a match day and he was working with young developing players we were working together so I said, do you trust me? He said, yes. I said, okay, tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, bring 10 pound coins with you. Okay, he said, what do you mean? I said, bring 10 pound coins, trust me. Okay, because he wanted to, um, I, I, he didn't want to be silent and, 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 and I agree with you that actually that, that's, and I want to move on to that in a moment around language, but he, he wanted to be less vocal. So I said, okay, in the game this morning, uh, the games were, I think they were 15 minutes each way. I said, right, so you've got a 30 minute game. If you want to make an instruction to the players, you can, but you have to give me one of the pound coins. <laughs> Guess what happened to his behaviour on the trips line quite quickly? <laughs> he wouldn't give a lot of instructions. No, well, he did. It cost him three pound though, but I gave it him back at the end. But it was it was an interesting one just to flip the uh, the reward yep. on its head. And he he had this. He, he, what he told me, he went through this real conscious process of fighting the urge to constantly instruct. And there were times where instruction was helpful and necessary. But he what he, what he he said it made him do was think before he acted and that, that, I found that quite a powerful experience I've only done it once I'm not I'm not trying to retire on any money I'm taking off coaches paying me good side business want to change the conversation a little bit because I mentioned how impactful the constraints work that you've published in the boot room has um, has been 
to something else that certainly that you've put out there and probably without realising it has had a really important impact on, on my own thoughts as a coach and this is the notion of uh, language and how important that is in shaping coaches beliefs so I think it was something that you mentioned and I, I'm paraphrasing here and I feel if I've got this wrong correct me um, the three most dangerous words in coaching was it, is it was it dangerous that you phrased it as always yeah yeah always must and never always yeah always must and never talk us through those and tell us how you came across them and um, yeah describe that a little bit more for us um, that was inspired by John Olpress who's inspired the youth award um, very much talking about from a coaching behaviour perspective that I suppose there's a lot of reductionism that goes on in coaching people are always trying to say it's about questions it's not about instruction it's about game related it's not about uh, drills or unopposed practice uh, and anybody says I always start my sessions with half an hour worth of ball mastery well have you tried doing it another way if you believe ball mastery should be in every part of your session maybe put it at the end of your session because perhaps when the players get more fatigued and the technique becomes exposed a little bit more there's a good opportunity to practice those things I don't know you, you, you must always pick your strongest team to start the game um, must you because that kind of sends a message to the players that aren't in that strongest team that perhaps they're less valued than, than somebody else um, and those that say say never I would you know I would never argue with a referee well maybe there's sometimes we don't need to argue with a referee but we need to recognise that there's positive and challenging conversations that we need to have with people so um, I think anybody that says I would never do this I always do that or you must do that is probably limiting the decisions that they can make for whatever reason they've decided to limit them yeah it's an interesting way of, of looking at language and how that might shape your beliefs and because what I find is that um, like you've mentioned that there's a lot of polarised arguments um, and people will plant their flag in the ground and almost get married to their own ideas without necessarily looking at things from um, from another point of view. So I've been keeping a list over the last few months uh, of words that are perhaps polarising and starting to think of, well, how might I change them? So instead of always, I might consider using often. So it might be something that, in, so instead of saying, um, uh, what was the example that you gave again sorry around always um, always do half an hour worth of yeah. ball marshal at the beginning of your session yeah so I might often often do it but I'm not marrying myself to that instead of never rarely instead of must should so it's, and it's not something that, that must happen but you would think it should happen instead of definitely probably every most so and I've just been noting down when I hear hear these words Ah, that's a word that perhaps I'm using that might I might consider something else that, that would change my or get me to consider things from another angle. And, and the context is probably everything, which says in certain contexts you might do half an hour worth of ball mastery at the beginning of the session. In other contexts you might not. Uh, we were speaking earlier recently, done some psychometric tests, um, and one of the things about your personality was asking you absolute questions about would you do this or would you do that and one of them was would you go to a party on a Friday night yeah. um, and my answer is always it, it depends it would depend what the week's been like what am I doing tomorrow who's going to the party what music are they playing etc etc so there are so many things that underpin the decision that you make in context informs all of that uh, I think the more flexible and adaptable we can be that says in this situation I've got the skill to be able to use this and in that situation I've got the skill to be able to use that hopefully means that we don't just use the same thing I think that if if um, if all you've got is a hammer every job looks like a nail 
Um, I think there's a risk that we just take the same tool to different problems just because it's the only one that we've got the skill to be able to use. I've, I've found that it's um, just being conscious of that language has made me a lot more considerate about my, my own behaviours. I was reminded just this last week, actually, one of the teams I used to coach was back up where I grew up, was on the Isle of Man. And luckily, lucky enough to work with the, the ladies' national team. I think this was around 2008 that we worked with them. We'd, we'd never won a medal before. And the, the, the Island Games, which they, is the kind of pinnacle, if you like, it's almost like the Olympics for islands. So you've got Bermuda and all different islands around the, the, the Falklands. They, they come together and, and they compete in, in what is essentially like an Olympic Games. We were in a place called Orland, which is uh, just off the coast of between Finland and Sweden, I think. We were there for about, I think, nine or ten days playing in a tournament. The other coach that I was working with, we, we recognised that there was a certain language that was creeping in that was having an impact on the culture of our team. So we decided to try and put a stop to it. And, and there was one word in particular that, that we felt that over the duration of the tournament wasn't going to help us that much, and that was unlucky. So we sat down with the players at a team meeting, I think this was on around day two, and just said, look, we want everybody here to be accountable for their actions. And what we're noticing is anytime anyone makes a mistake, the initial knee-jerk response is, that's unlucky. So we want to try and phase that, that word out and start to get the players to be more, uh, more accountable, likewise with the coaches. So um, the players came up with the idea of a fine system. So anyone that, that said the word unlucky, they could say it, but it was going to cost them a euro. In a day and a half, I think we had 200 euros in a pot for the, uh, the night out at the end of the tournament. But after that, there was a feel like a shift in the in the culture of the team it was almost like everyone grew a few inches taller and, and was prepared to accept when they'd made a mistake and take responsibility and so that yeah just looking at how that um, those words can shape the culture which then shapes behaviors I found really interesting and I've it's something that has carried with me for, for you know for the last decade or so yeah I guess yeah. one of the big principles that was in the module one was about ca catching people doing it well and I guess Coach, coaches can have been programmed through coach education to wait for mistakes, spot the mistakes and correct the mistakes, which means the players can become programmed to think every time the coach stops it, if it's near me, almost like your, your heart sinks, your shoulders drop, yeah. you're like, oh, here they come, they're coming yeah. to get me this time, as opposed to, I'm not saying we should never correct, but finding that balance between stopping it to correct something and stopping it to catch somebody, do it well enough, celebrating the success that someone has had, almost as a means of being positive with people and making them recognise that there is a positive nature to our environment. And that was something that, that happened over that trip is after a day or so, the fines almost dried up. We had enough to, uh, to enjoy ourselves on, but it gave us the opportunity where previously someone had, had let somebody off the hook, if you like, by using the word unlucky. Um, it was an opportunity to actually praise the, the new behaviour. Yeah. And it very quickly very quickly changed right the way through the team. And the element of accountability whereby in the end the players start holding each other to account in a, in a positive and uh, empowering way means that 
like the environment drives itself, that's a bit cliche, but almost that the players start to take responsibility for the things that are important to them. Yeah. Um, and as, I guess our, our role, if we've got one, is to support them to shape that. We ended up winning a bronze medal actually that that week, which was which was great. And I noticed that the uh, the ladies just went one better last week and won a silver. So well done, well done to them. And and the men actually won a gold. So it's a little nod to my uh, to my homeland. <laughs> uh, brilliant, Ben. I mean, just looking at our crib sheet here, is there anything else that we haven't discussed that we plan to talk about? Um, I think that there's there's been some stuff around. We sort of touched in various places upon the coach behaviour stuff. Much of the way that we support stroke assess coaches is to look at behaviour, both through video, through audio and through some black and white statistics. Uh, start with the things that you believe to be important and then what behaviours might best reflect that. So from a coaching session perspective, we would record the amount of uh, the duration of the session, so 90 minutes for example, the amount of time in that 90 minutes that the ball was active, so it might be 60 minutes out of a 90 minute session, the amount of time that they stopped it, the whole of the group to intervene and coach in the traditional sense, the amount of time that there was session management, i.e. moving from practice to practice. So that sort of statistical data underpins the sort of activity of that session then start to look at the uh, nature of the intervention. So we stopped it nine times. The average intervention time was a minute. Um, we used questions five times. We used trial and error twice. We used command twice. So are the behaviours that you're using aligned well with the qualities that you're hoping to develop in the players? What's the duration between the interventions? So we spoke earlier about wanting players who can concentrate, who can work hard, and then some coaches are stopping the session every 60 seconds, which means the players don't really get an opportunity to have to concentrate for five, six minutes without stoppage, uh, to have to work hard and to keep committing to the things that are important as they start to fatigue a little bit more. And then also to look at some of the ways which we alluded to before about the way that you intervene with particular players. So Jack gets 50% of his interactions of praise, Ben only 10% of his are praise. Is that deliberate? Is it that Jack needs a little bit more praise? Or is it that you've got an unconscious bias towards Jack for whatever reason that you've got an unconscious bias, which allows people to look at those things a little bit more and see whether or not that's the behavior that they, that they want. Added to that, we go a little bit more subjective and say, I saw this, watched minute 12, this happened, you said that, what do you think about that? Um, so hopefully it gives them a little bit more of an opportunity to review their behaviour and be a little bit more discussional. Uh, the black and white stuff has been really powerful. In the early days, uh, one of the clubs I supported used to see the ball rolling time as almost like a badge of honour, which is mm. uh, if you got 65%, I would try to get 70 And I think uh, the sort of um, tipping point for that was one coach who I think he got something like 86% ball rolling, hardly stopped the practice at all. And at the end said to me, is that what you want? And I was like... I don't, I don't have a view on what I want, I just want you to rationalise why it is that you yeah. want the ball to roll more in one session than you do from another. Um, so that people start to make decisions about why they do what they do and probably the most inspiring one was a coach who a couple of years ago now did the, the, the typical thing with him, I think he had the ball rolling for about 36% of the time and he was quite shocked statistically about Blimey, he thought he was uh, he thought he'd more open, he thought there was more ball rolling time going on than that. Um, and over a course of three, four months, he came up with seven steps, seven particular things, one of which was doing more individual interventions while the ball was rolling. Another one was using fewer practice in his session, so he spent less time moving from practice to practice, which enabled him to increase the ball rolling time. I didn't need to give him those interventions. All I did is gave him the film, gave him the statistics. He went away and came up with his seven steps, and when I went back and saw him three, four months later, he'd increased it from 36% to up near 70%. So it's almost as if he'd said, I've seen this behaviour, I want to change it, these are the seven tactics that I've used. And then what was really motivating is then we used that through a CPD event to have him share with his colleagues, this is what I've done, these are the things that I've done, and it almost then becomes, if you want to learn something, teach it. 
So you've then got one of the coaches teaching his peers all of the things that he did to get to where he wanted to get to, using that as a, as a, a really powerful tool, as opposed to the FA or the Premier League or the Football League standing up at the front and saying, this is what we want. Having the coaches empowered to share their own experiences of why they did what they did is a really powerful way of uh, impacting upon behaviour change. It's really inspiring stuff. And one of the things that I suppose I've realised from following your work over the last few years certainly has been that the opportunity for coaches now to go through this process of almost self-analysis, reflection and behaviour change because the way that technology has evolved is, is so much more open to all. So a coach doesn't necessarily need Ben Bartlett to come out and, and work with them to do this. It would certainly be helpful, but there's not 30,000 of you to go around the country and there's not 30,000 of us to support yeah. all the co practicing coaches out there. If there was a, a kind of process that a coach listening in could go through to start to consider their own behaviours, uh, reflect upon them and bring about a process of change, what, what might that process look like as a kind of way of bringing this whole conversation together? Yeah, I suppose the, the, the first thing would be to ask yourself two questions. What, what's the purpose of your environment? So what is it that you're there to do? And then why do you coach the way that you coach? And just spend some time thinking about the answers to those two questions. And then maybe if you are by yourself, if you've got children that are sitting watching the game as substitutes, if you've got parents that can be supportive, just giving them a crib sheet and saying, look, can you please count the amount of times I shout something from the sideline on a match day? Can you please, every time I stop the practice, can you please just put your stopwatch on and tell me how much time it is that I'm stopped it for? So simple ways in which you can build that, that information um, for your own practice. The power of using the kids is that they'll give you a, a brilliant perspective. They're honest. <laughs> and it also sends the message that it's not only them that are there to develop, that you're there to develop as well, and that the, the kids have got an opportunity to play a part in that, which can be quite empowering. I think the more that you can analyse those statistics and say, is this what I want? If it is, carry on and knock yourself out. If it isn't, then say, well, what are some of the things that I can do to potentially support that again? The players and the parents can be a good source of knowledge for that. It can also involve them a little bit in thinking about your methodology and why is your methodology? Because often parents... Uh, very well intentioned can stand on the sideline and be making judgments on coaches that they don't even understand why they're doing what they're mm -hmm. doing involving them in that process assuming they choose to stay and watch the sessions can possibly give them a little bit of insight into why you're doing the things that you're doing and maybe enable you to get another pair of hands to support you um, if you're low tech um, someone having a phone I know you've done a load of work about f uh, filming and mi microphoning with your phone so that's a, a relatively straightforward way of doing it if you're more high tech and someone's got a camcorder getting it filmed, even sometimes not even having the camera on the session or the game, having it on you and just looking at the things that you do. I know I used to have a habit of not getting frustrated when a goalkeeper of mine who had a habit of throwing in lots of goals, but every time that she would concede one, I would just put my head down. Uh, so getting someone to film you to do that almost said that even though you didn't say anything or do you, anything. This was you. This yeah. was me, yeah. Wow. That you would just look down was almost a, a sense of when things went wrong, you were disassociating yourself yeah. from them by looking down. Another one was uh, the call box that used to be by the side of the pitch where I'd be up, stood up, doing my bits from the sideline. Every time we went more than two goals behind, I would sit down on the call box as if to say, when we're in the game, I'm with you. When the game's gone, I'm on the call box and I'm not with you anymore. So some people could not see anything in those things, but perhaps they are quite significant in terms of the way that you associate yourself with the success when things are going well, or maybe you disassociate yourself from the things when people make mistakes. And yeah, if there's one thing I've learned from 
teaching in a school for a, a year was that the kids will pick up on everything and they will remember it forever. They, they, I remember a certain class that I taught where um, it would be April time and I, uh, I uh, imposed a uh, sanction of some descript on one of the children who was misbehaving and somebody else in the class reminded me of the, the same situation a few months ago in September where I didn't I couldn't remember that but they they remembered it and they they do they pick up on every little bit of body language I find yeah Uh, particularly if we've got things like fairness spread up around the wall and then we don't necessarily embody that in our practice and you know those like you know the the idea that people that work for the FA that give feedback to people are absolutely perfect in their practice you know I look back on some of my practice and go if I had my time again I'd do that very very different oh likewise Um, yeah but that, that reflection of watching yourself back on video and seeing those things that you possibly knew you, that you did, but didn't really realise the impact that it had and how deliberate it was when you were doing it. it. Was definitely a massive change for me in terms of thinking about how I behaved. I didn't necessarily need someone to tell me that, only for someone to show me it. It's just that that blind spot again that we yeah. spoke about. Yes, yeah, and I suppose when when we've got that information that that maybe the players or the parents or uh, have given us, it's it's what do we do with it, and then how do we potentially start to use some constraints on ourselves yeah. to bring about that, our own behavior change and then tracking and monitoring as we go on yeah yeah that's uh that's brilliant stuff ben i really appreciate that i want to close up just by um asking a couple of questions that that uh, have come in off twitter these are regular questions that we ask to um to everyone that comes on um so the first one is what's the best investment that you've made in yourself as a coach um, I, I'd probably go with two. The first one is sort you can of have two. Of a, You're allowed thank to. You. Yeah. The first one is probably more of a formal training thing, which was uh, the master's degree. It certainly made me examine my practice in a way that I'd never examined it before. Mm. I guess all of the qualifications on my CV have got FA in front of them, all of which have been football coaching qualifications, which have been massively um, supportive and, and informative. I guess very very few times have they really led to me looking inside myself and examining what I believe to be true and how that reflects on what I do. That's certainly done that and also given me more of a formal structure to the way that I think. And I think one of the big things that was embodied in that from one of the guys that was introduced on that programme very early was about us being filing cabinets, not magpies so that when you're collecting something, you're ordering it, so that when you take it back out, you can rationalise to someone why you're using it in that way, as opposed to just magpieing something that's shiny and sticking it in the nest in the way that a, a magpie might do. Um, yeah. So that sort of analogy of, if you're going to take something, put it into some kind of order that you can reflect and use in an informed way when you're working with your players or your coaches. So that would be the first thing. And the second thing was probably more about things that you pick up from other people, and the best investment is probably more about listening. I guess coaching has been very much about being noisy, being at the front of the queue, being the one that's got lots to say and actually potentially you've got the greater capacity to help people by asking more questions, listening a little bit more, trying to find out what drives them to support you to support themselves. Yeah, that's a, a great point to end it I think Ben and um, just A, I want to thank you for your time, B, thanks for uh, all your help on working with the, the coach education pathway and, and specifically level two with me I've learned a ton it's been a, a brilliant inspiring uh, informative educational all in equal measure and uh, if coaches want to find out more about the work that you've done that we've discussed or connect with you where might they do that uh, boot, boot room past issues is pretty much uh, in there um, uh, and yeah, the, the, the stuff on social media that you can possibly follow as well, but Boot Room is probably the best avenue. Yeah. Brilliant. Ben, 
Thank you very much. Thanks, Jack. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please help spread the word or leave us a review on iTunes. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can reach me on Twitter at JackWalton1. And don't forget to follow Liverpool FA at Liverpool underscore CFA. See you next time.